now the biggest focus of our time together, the preaching of God's word. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me to Genesis chapter 31 this morning. Genesis chapter 31. Today we are coming to the end of this remarkable drama between Jacob and his uncle Laban. And friends, the, the end of this part of the story is going to prove to be just as dramatic as all the rest. Uh, the title for this morning's sermon is The Great Escape. And so let's begin by reading the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 31. All 55 verses are a gift to us from God this morning. It says this, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and sent his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired and paid in Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. 
Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done and, and that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourines and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Laban, now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shehudatha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Gilead and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, do you know what it is to have an enemy in life? Do you you know what it is to have someone who opposes you and who opposes what you are doing? Many of us know what this feels like, whether it is for spiritual or non-spiritual reasons, whether it's a bully at school or whether it's a, a professor who opposes our Christian beliefs on campus whether it is a spouse who attacks us, maybe it's a coworker or a manager who is after our jobs, maybe it's somebody online. We all know what it is to feel opposition in this life, and none of us like it very much. It, it may be that some of us deal with conflict better than others, but none of us actually enjoys it when someone attacks us. I personally know what it is to have people oppose me. I have had people publicly scream at me in front of hundreds of people because they didn't like what I was preaching. I've had groups of students create mocking ringtones of my voice on their phones in order to undermine something that I was trying to say. I've had someone place a gun on my desk and say that it was to shoot me in the head when they got angry with me during a difficult counseling session. I remember being 18 years old and, and working in the mall and having a coworker create posters and signs that he hung up specifically to mock my faith and my desire to be a pastor. Now, granted, this opposition that I've experienced is nothing compared to what others have experienced. Indeed, as was prayed earlier, there are brothers and sisters in Christ right now this morning throughout the world who are having to fight for their lives because of the enemies that stand against them and against their faith. But whether our lives are legitimately at stake or whether our reputation is simply being attacked, having enemies is not fun. Being truly opposed by someone is a very unsettling experience. But friends, being opposed, having enemies is not new. This is a part of of what it means to live in a fallen world. And it, it certainly is a part of what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world. We will have people attack us. We will have people who oppose us. Friends, I wonder if you feel this growing amount of anxiety and fear in your spirit because of where our country and our culture and our society are headed. Do you feel this growing fear that to be a a biblical Christian is is going to become increasingly dangerous? I know that I have that fear. As I read and as I watch the news, I feel this, this growing tide of opposition against all that I love and hold dear as a Christian here in 2021. Opposition is not fun. But church, 
God is not blind to this opposition, particularly to our spiritual opposition. God does not ignore or leave his people alone in these attacks. No, as we see throughout all of scripture, and as we see in a particular way here in our text today, God sees his people and is eager to protect his people from their enemies. Folks, the main idea for our message today is simply this. God preserves his people from those who oppose them. God preserves his people from those who oppose them. And so you and I can have strength and, excuse me, and courage this morning as we deal with these hard realities. We have three points this morning. Point number one, God prospers his people. Point number two, God conquers his enemies. And point number three, God preserves his purposes. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, God prospers his people. Verses 1 to 16 really are a review of what we considered together from last week. If you remember from last week, Jacob did not want to work for Laban any longer. He wanted to return home. And so as payment for his services, he offered to Laban to only take the spotted and the speckled sheep and goats from the flock, which would have been a steal. That's a great deal for Laban. And so Laban quickly accepted it. However, as we saw last week, through, through a little bit of drama, through, through some theatricals, through a little strategic and scientific breeding, and through God's miraculous provision, Jacob's flocks prospered even while Laban's flocks grew weaker and weaker. And now, in our text here today, we see all the way down in verse 41 that, that six years have gone by. And so this, this transfer of prosperity has taken some time. But now, after six years, the change is significant. The change is, is noticeable. Laban's sons notice it in verse 1. They can tell that their father's prosperity has transferred to Jacob. And it says in verse 2 that Jacob, after Laban's sons tell him what has happened, Jacob can tell that Laban is displeased. He's not happy about this situation. Folks, things are about to go down between Laban and Jacob. Things are about to go down. It's about to get messy. And so God appears to Jacob in verse 3, and he tells him to leave Laban and to return to Canaan. And so then in verses 4 to 16, Jacob talks to Rachel and Leah, his two wives. He, he takes them out into the field to talk to them for the sake of secrecy. He didn't want Laban to overhear what they were saying, their, their plot to flee. And so starting in verse 5, Jacob lays out the situation for Rachel and Leah. And these verses really do give a little bit of the backstory to what had been going on. Apparently, the, the scheming Laban has been at it again and again. He has tried to change Jacob's wages ten times. According to verse 8, if Laban saw a few spotted sheep be born, well, then he would change his tune and say, no, 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 your wages are only the speckled sheep. But then if he saw a few speckled sheep be born, he'd say, no, 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 your wages are only the spotted sheep. He was a miserable and deceitful employer. Folks, do you know what it is to have people who are against you in this way? Do, do you have people in your life who are actively trying to cheat you and to undermine you? People who no matter how hard you try, you just can't make them happy? We, we've all experienced this to some degree. But, but in this text, in a good way, 
Jacob has persevered through the trial, and God has prospered him in the midst of the trial, and also in a good way. Jacob does not take the credit for what has happened for himself. No, Jacob rightly gives the glory back to God. Notice the the multiple ways that Jacob contrasts what what Laban has done to him and what God has done for him. Look at verse 5. It says, I see your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 7, your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob creates this, this contrast between his enemy, Laban, the, the one who's opposed him, and God who miraculously delivers, provides for, and even prospers him. Friends, I actually think that we see a, a beautiful biblical picture here that is meant to encourage our hearts and souls this morning. It, it's the picture that God not only delivers his people from their enemies, but he often delivers them from their enemies at their enemies' expense. Right? Consider, consider the Israelites in the book of Exodus and how God not only delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but as they're leaving, he leads all of the Egyptians to give them their gold and their silver and their expensive clothing and all of their jewelry. They prosper on their way out. Consider the story of Esther, which I read in my devotionals this week. Consider the evil enemy, Haman, who was opposed to Mordecai, but how he not only did not succeed in his attack on Mordecai and the Jews, but he himself ultimately is hung on the gallows that he created for Mordecai. And then the Jewish people prosper in that place. Friends, listen, it's so clear throughout this story today and throughout our Bibles that it is God who does the prospering and that he often does so to to the defeat and to the shame of our enemies. Now, friends, you might not wake up tomorrow morning with suddenly all of your enemies' possessions as your own, as nice as that might be. You might not suddenly be given your your mean boss's new car or your grumpy neighbor's perfect lawn. You, You might not end up with their physical possessions, but you can know that on a spiritual level, you have prospered, and in a sense, it is at your enemy's expense. See, when we get into the New Testament... And we begin to see the life of Jesus and ultimately his death on the cross. We begin to see and understand that the wisdom and the riches and the power of this world are not really wisdom and riches and power at all. God has turned the value system upside down on its head. Through the cross, through the gospel, through through a poor rabbi from Nazareth who was despised and rejected by all who know him. Through this man dying on a Roman instrument of death. Through this, God has turned the world's understanding of what it means to prosper and to succeed and to have power. And he's, he's thrown it upside down. And so the world looks at the cross and says, that's no wisdom at all. There's no power there. There's no prosperity to be found there. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that God has made foolish the wisdom and the riches and the power of this world. Church, you can know this morning that through the cross, God has turned the value system of this world upside down. And now, as they consider what they consider to be riches, it's going to become poverty. And what they consider to be poverty in you and weakness in you is going to be proven to be riches and strength and power. 
God prospers his people through their faith in Christ. He not only provides for their daily needs, he proves that that what we have put our faith in is of far greater worth and value than all the riches and the treasures of this world. Church, before we move on to point number two, I I think it's important for us to consider how this truth can function in in our hearts and our souls today. It could be rightly asked, are we supposed to want our enemies to be put to shame? Doesn't Jesus say, love your enemies and and bless those who curse you? Well, absolutely. Yes, he does. And we should love and bless our enemies. But listen, that love for our enemies is really only possible if we know that the wisdom and the riches of this world have been turned upside down by the gospel. The only way that you can truly love your enemies without it being some fake facade of love is to care for them sincerely while knowing that that sort of love actually comes from the riches of God's grace, which is not available to them. They they can't love in that same way because they only know how to live for themselves. And and by their self-preservation, they're they're actually going to be put to shame as we walk out self-sacrifice because we have been given the riches of Christ. Our hope in the gospel, church, enables us not to live for worldly justification, not to have to be proven right in the eyes of our friends, not to have to make our point stronger than theirs. Our hope in the gospel enables us to be wronged, but in the end, we will be exalted with our risen Savior. God prospers his people, and oftentimes at the expense of his enemies. And friends, that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, God conquers his enemies. Being attacked is a very difficult thing, particularly when we feel as if we are living obedient lives before the Lord and seeking to honor him with who we are. It can be a very confusing, very disorienting, very discouraging thing to have people oppose us. In this text, Jacob seems to be following the Lord. It was the Lord that prospered his hand, and it was the Lord who tells him to leave in verse 3. And we actually see godly initiative and obedience from Jacob in this story. He, He doesn't delay his obedience to God. He doesn't steal the glory for himself. No, he seems to be wanting to follow the Lord and to lead his family to do the same. Jacob is becoming a man of public faith. He's he's living an obedient life. But living out our faith does not always mean that things will be easy for us, does it? Following the Lord doesn't mean that that we won't have enemies. In fact, Jesus himself said that we should expect to have people who oppose us. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. He's talking about spiritual opposition and persecution for our faith. Church, when we are opposed by the world because of our faith in Jesus, we should not be surprised. Even as Jesus was opposed, we should expect the same. And this is is so good to know. It's so good because we feel this opposition a lot today, don't we? Even though here in America our lives are not being threatened in the same way as others in other parts of the world, we are still feeling the opposition of a secular culture encroaching in on us all the time. And it, it hurts, right? It's, it's painful. It's, it's a fearful thing. And it's good this morning to know that this attack is not abnormal in God's eyes. 
is not strange to him. It's, it's not a surprise. It's actually to be expected. Christian, listen, perhaps one of the most encouraging things that can happen in your Christian walk and in your discipleship journey is to be opposed or to be attacked for your faith. Jesus said that the servant is not greater than the master. If we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, who himself was attacked and killed, we should be grateful when the world treats us the same way because it confirms that we are following in his steps. But it doesn't make it easy, does it? Not at all. And when we deal with difficulty and opposition, it can leave us asking the question, Jesus, what is going to happen as we seek to live for you? Jesus, are we safe? Jesus, are you going before us? Jesus, will you fight for us? But again, in the midst of this attack and danger, we can know God preserves his people from those who oppose them. Church, this story here in Genesis chapter 31 shows us in really remarkable ways that our God is committed to protecting his people from those who attack them. And he's committed to not just protecting us, but ultimately to conquering those who oppose us. Consider the flow of this text with me this morning. There are 18 times here that we see the word God or Lord written into this text. That's a lot in one chapter. God's name and God's hand are everywhere in this story. Verse 3, it is God who steps in and tells Jacob to leave. The, the Lord Yahweh himself is aware of this coming attack from Laban and he looks to preserve Jacob and his family. And then in verse 17 to 21, Jacob obeys the Lord and he leaves. Verse, verse 22, Jacob finds out that, that Jacob, Laban finds out that Jacob has, has fled and he begins the pursuit. Now, folks, don't be mistaken. This, this is intense. Yes, they're on camels, so they're kind of going like this. But don't be mistaken. This is like a Fast and Furious film going on right here in the ancient times. This is, time is of the essence. Laban is after Jacob and needing to catch up to him. So just imagine them in the cars going down the highway together. But then... In verse 24, right before Laban finally overtakes Jacob, it's taken seven days to do so, verse 24 says that God comes to Laban in a dream and says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, that does not mean that he's not allowed to say anything at all. It just means that God is telling Laban not to take any action against Jacob. Friends, the clear picture that we're getting from this narrative is that God the Lord, Yahweh, is in perfect control of the situation. That God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who is protecting Jacob from his enemies. That God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who is ultimately going to conquer all of his enemies. And this is such good news for us this morning. Church, consider the part of the story that, that deals with Laban and his household gods. Lowercase g gods, small gods. Laban was an idolater. He didn't worship Yahweh, the one true God. No, he worshiped idols made with human hands. And, and in verse 19, there's this, there's this sad sentence that says that before fleeing, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now, 
We don't, we don't know why Rachel stole them. Some people think that she was trying to keep her father from worshiping them any longer. I don't think that that's probably the case. I think that Rachel was still drawn to these false gods and wanted the, the added security of having them by her side, which is not a good thing at all. But regardless of why, Laban wants them back. Look at down in verse, uh, verse 30. Laban says to Jacob, why did you steal my gods? Now, Jacob didn't even know that Rachel had stolen them. And so he says, I didn't steal your gods, Laban. Go ahead and search for them. In fact, if you find them, whoever has them will be killed. We'll, we'll put them to death. And so, so Laban begins his search. And in verses 33 to 35, Laban goes into each of the tents of his daughters to search for his gods. But he can't find them. Why? Because Rachel, verse 34, put them in a saddle and was sitting on top of them. And then when her dad comes in to search for them, she says, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. She says that she's in the middle of her menstrual cycle, and so she needs to remain seated. So, so verse 35 says that Laban cannot find his gods. Friends, think about this picture. Yahweh, the one true God, is seen everywhere in this story. He is directing Jacob. He is rebuking Jacob's enemies. He is guiding, providing, protecting the entire way. And what are the gods of Laban doing? They are needing to be rescued by Laban. Laban Laban's looking intense for his gods. He's picking up the couch and saying, are you under there? He's, he's pulling back the curtain. Are you back there? He's looking in the, in the wastebasket. Gods, where are you? Where have you gone? Gods, come back. Church, what kind of gods are these that need to be searched for? And then, and then think about the picture of Rachel's menstrual uncleanness being on top of Laban's household gods. What a picture this is. Why does Moses include all of this in the story? Church, he includes it for the sake of Israel as they were looking at all of their enemies and he includes it to remind us of how God is able to conquer his enemies once and for all. Church, consider this. Give thought to this this morning. Your God, the Lord, Yahweh, crushes all other gods. Amen. He conquers all of his enemies. Laban is defeated in the story. Laban returns home, head hung low, without his daughters, without his grandsons, without his flocks, and without his gods. Why? Because the Lord, our God, Yahweh, is over all. Because the Lord is the, the protector of his people. Because the Lord reigns on high, and because the Lord fights for his people. There's no struggle in your life, no burden in your soul, no trial that you're going through that your God is not willing to fight for, and that God will not ultimately be victorious in. Amen. Church, I, I want this to encourage us in a particular way this morning. I want this to encourage us, not just individually, but, but together as a church family. And so, yes, the story is meant to encourage you personally. Uh, yes, these truths can give you hope in the midst of your personal and relational struggles and in the midst of personal attack from others. And so be encouraged in that today. But church, let's consider this not just for ourselves, but for our whole church together. God will conquer his enemies. And so, yes, the culture is going to attack us. Yes, laws are going to be written that, that are, are threatening our freedom and our ability to worship freely. Yes, our biblical convictions are going to be attacked and spoken about as, as if they are evil and unloving. 
Yes, we will feel increasingly like foreigners in our own land and in our own country. Notice in verse 15 how, how Leah and Rachel say that they are foreigners even in their own home, in their father's house. Friends, this culture is going to feel less and less like our home. But church, we can know as the people of God, even as a small remnant of a, of a local church together living in a hostile world, we can know that we will be victorious. Why? Because the worship, we worship a God who is victorious over all his enemies. And so we can have, have confidence as a church together. We can have confidence that he is at work in and through us. We can have confidence that, that even what feels like defeat to us in this world is victory in the eyes of God. We can know that the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And so Redeemer Fellowship, let's not stop fighting, amen? Let, let's not give into fear. Let's not be preoccupied by the culture. Let's not stop fighting for gospel unity even when it gets hard. Let's not so stop fighting for personal and corporate holiness even when our sin haunts us. Let's not abandon our call to proclaim the gospel, to serve our community, and to stand on biblical truth day after day. Why? Because Jesus will make his victory known in greater and greater and greater ways to this world through his people who know him and who are seeking to live for him. He will conquer his enemies. Friends, that brings us to our third and to our final point, which is a gloriously hope-filled point. Point number three, God preserves his purposes. I, I wonder if you hear all of this and if you find some encouragement in it, but if you are still weary in the fight. I wonder if the if the opposition of, of spiritual attack, and the opposition of your own sinful hearts, and the, the opposition of physical sickness or weakness, I wonder if it's causing you to wonder in practical ways today whether you can keep fighting or not, whether you can keep trusting God with your life or not. Church, isn't it true that sometimes we can know that, that ultimately God will defeat our enemies and that heaven is going to be great, but then still wonder in practical ways whether we can even survive another day here on earth? Well, what about the present danger of attack? What about our besetting sins? What about our physical pain and weakness? Friend, do you feel mentally fragile this morning as you think about continuing this fight against these things for not just days, not just weeks, but, but months and years and decades. Living by faith in a fallen and sin-sick world is a very exhausting experience. You know, even as, as Jacob gets fed up with Laban in verse 36, and he begins to berate Laban for all the things that he has done against him, so we can become fed up with how things have gone for us too, Right? We are tempted to start berating our circumstances. Why has this happened? Why are these attacks happening? Why do we have that trial on top of all the other trials? But brothers and sisters, there are wonderful truths in this text to keep us this morning. Te truths in this text to sustain us and to strengthen us today. There are wonderful reminders here to give us strength in the fight for faith on a daily and weekly basis as we move forward. Friend, Notice the presence of the Lord again throughout this text. And, and not just in his name being listed, but the covenantal language that is used about him from this chapter. Lang language that is used about him and language that is spoken 
from him. Verse 3, the Lord says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. The, the form of that sentence is very similar to what God said to Abraham in chapter 12 when he said, go to the country and I go out of the country and I will make of you a great nation. Even more so in this verse, what the Lord says to Jacob is exactly what he said to him back in chapter 28. He says, I will be with you. And then down in verse 13, Jacob elaborates on what God had said to him. And he says that the Lord said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. God is is citing the moment when he and Jacob entered into a holy covenant together. Down in verse 42, Jacob is berating Laban for all the wrong that he has done. But he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. When he says the, the fear of Isaac there, that, that either just means the one who Isaac reveres in worship, or it means the one that Isaac's enemies feared. But either way, it's speaking of Yahweh. This is all covenantal language. Once again, here in the book of Genesis, we see that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He, he preserves his purposes Church, 31 chapters into the story, countless trials and difficulties into the story, and nothing has changed. God remains faithful. Victor Hamilton says in his commentary, Yahweh makes clear that his relationship with Jacob has neither changed nor degenerated. Christian, Yahweh's relationship with you has neither changed nor degenerated either. No matter how worn down you feel today, no matter how fragile your heart and mind are, no matter how weary your body is, your relationship with the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God will not change or degenerate. It, It just won't happen. Church, it can't happen. Consider with me how true this is because of the gospel. Right? The the story of Genesis is, is the introduction to all the rest of Scripture. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said that he would send the seed of the woman who would then crush the seed of the serpent, ever since then, we have seen God's people be preserved and his enemies defeated time and again. And friends, there is a day coming that all of this is pointing to, a day in which the seed of the woman would come and he would live a perfect life. And he would die an unjust death. And he would lay in that grave for three long days. But then he would rise from the dead, victorious over sin and over the grave. Church, listen. Amen. Genesis chapter 31 shows God's power over one enemy and over his false gods. But the whole point of this story is to point us to the moment when God would demonstrate his ultimate power over all of our enemies and over all other false gods and over sin and death themselves. Through the gospel, through the resurrection in particular, death itself is defeated. Our greatest enemy has been crushed under the feet of Christ. I love love how in verses 43 to 55, Laban kind of gives up on the fight. Whether willingly or reluctantly or begrudgingly, he knows that because God is on Jacob's side, that he's been defeated. And so he begrudgingly suggests that they make a covenant together. 
And so Jacob and Laban set up a pillar. They set up a heap of stones, as it says. It's a huge monument, and they name it Jeger Sehudatha. I have no idea whether I'm saying that right or not. And they also name it Galiad. Both of those names literally mean a heap of witness. God has won. And there is now a heap of witness between Jacob and his enemy. It actually says, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. God ultimately says to Laban through this text, this far, Laban, and no farther. You cannot continue to attack my people. There is now a separation between you and Jacob, and it shall not be passed to do harm. There is a, a heap of witness between you. Church, listen, there is another heap of stone that is a witness for us as well. It's the empty grave. The heap of stone with that stone rolled away with no corpse left inside of it. That too is a heap of witness to us this morning. It's a celebration of the resurrection. Resurrection Sunday is a heap of witness to us of God's covenantal love and how he preserves his people. Because of his resurrection from the grave, sin ultimately cannot touch us. The empty grave is now set between us and sin, just like the heap of stones was set between Jacob and Laban. The empty grave says, no farther sin, no farther death. You cannot meet my people. And so church, do not lose hope this morning. Amen? Look at the empty grave. It's completely empty. Christ is not there. Look at the stone rolled away. Look at the grave clothes lying there on the floor and know that all of your enemies have been defeated and God will preserve you today and for all eternity. He will strengthen you in your weakness. He will strengthen your, your fragile mental state today. This will not be the end of you. God himself, Yahweh, the Lord, is by your side. The empty grave will preserve us from the attack of our enemies. The empty grave will preserve us from the attack of our culture. The empty grave will protect us from the attack of cancer and disease. The empty grave will protect us from our own sinfulness and pride on a daily basis. He will preserve his people. He's not going to leave you, friend. He's not going to forsake you. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and he will be by your side every day this week and every day for the rest of eternity. You can trust him. Redeemer Fellowship, we can all trust him together. He is the one who prospers his people, who conquers his enemies, who preserves his purposes. He is the God who preserves his people from those who oppose them.